First Kings chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, with all he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of, of them by tomorrow about this time. Good evening and welcome again to our worship service. We're grateful for the good number that has assembled tonight. We're very grateful that you've chosen to be back and we want to encourage you to make it a point to be here Wednesday night for our Bible study at 7 p.m. and then back again next Sunday at 9 a.m. for Bible study and then worship at 10 a.m. as well. We're always glad to have the opportunity to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're thankful for the many opportunities of service that we have in the Lord's Church, and we're grateful for the church here and the opportunity to be a member of this congregation and to do all that we can to make known the name of Christ in this community. If you're visiting, as always, we invite you to come back and be with us at every occasion that may be yours. We're very grateful that you have chosen to honor us with your presence tonight. In our study tonight, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Kings. We are specifically going to be looking at chapter 19, the passage that was read just a moment ago by Isaiah. But we will drop back for just a moment and look at chapter 18 and then focus our minds on chapter 19 in just a moment. The first thing I want us to do is just to examine the text and then we're going to make some application from chapter 19 in the book of 1 Kings, and there are really three very specific things that I want to share with you tonight by way of application. The first thing that I want to do is just put before you the theme of our study tonight. We're looking at the life of a man by the name of Elijah, and our study tonight accentuates a man who at one point in time stood victorious. He was a victor. And really he went from victor to vagabond. And so that's going to be the theme of our study this evening. In looking at chapter 18, we read of Elijah's triumph on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was located about 50 miles north or northwest of the city of Jerusalem. And it was located near the coast. It was here that Elijah the prophet had a confrontation with one of the most evil kings of all time. A man by the name of Ahab. Ahab, as you know, had married a woman by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel was a very wicked and idolatrous woman. And I really believe that she had a great deal of influence on the life of Ahab himself. But in chapter 18, we read of a confrontation that took place between Ahab and Elijah the prophet. And Ahab accused Elijah of being a troubler of Israel. And yet Ahab, in effect, was the one who was troubling the house of Israel. And so in chapter 18, we have a showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal. And we're not going to take the time to read chapter 18 or to go into great detail. 
But in looking at this chapter, what we find is that Elijah stood victorious and the prophets of Baal, they were ultimately put to death. And the people on this occasion, they realized that there was but one God, that being Jehovah God, as a result of the things that took place on Mount Carmel. Well, in chapter 19, we have some threatening circumstances facing the prophet Elijah. And so in looking at chapter 19, they've had this great showdown on Mount Carmel. Elijah has stood victorious. Jezebel, the evil wife of Ahab, she learns what's happened and that the prophets, her prophets, the prophets of Baal, have been put to death. And so, and so as a result of this, she sends a message to Elijah and basically tells him, listen, I'm going to have you put to death. Just as you put my prophets to death, you're going to be put to death. And so in verse 1, we read of Elijah's foe. Look, if you would, at what the text says. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And so here we find this great prophet of God, Elijah, his life is now in jeopardy. Well, what did he do? Well, he did what many of us would do. He got out of town. He fled. And so we read of his journey. In verse 3, the Bible says, And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Look at verse 4, if you would. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom or juniper tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate, ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And so Elijah's a man on the run. He has been threatened by evil Jezebel with his own life, and so he got out of town. Now in verse 9 we read of the self-pity of Elijah. And in verses 9 and following, what comes to my mind is, here was a man of God floundering in this particular circumstance or situation that has arisen in his life. And so you have somewhat of a journal being set before you concerning the mental state or mental outlook of Elijah the prophet. Verse 9, the Bible says, There he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. Now, it's at this juncture that things begin to turn for this man called Elijah. And we read of his good fortune. And as a result of his good fortune, ultimately, a sense of joy. Note, if you would, what is said. Drop down to verse 18. Here's what God said to the prophet. In light of all that's gone on, in light of the fact that Elijah feels all alone, that he is the only one serving the Lord at this point in time in history, here's what God in the long ago said. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What was God trying to say to Elijah? I think that there are, are any number of, a less, of, of lessons that would emerge out of this particular text. But I want to share with you what I believe to be three very significant lessons from this account found in the Old Testament. The first is this. Every mountain has a valley, and every valley has a mountain. And whether we're on the mountain or in the valley, God is still there. Elijah, he had been victorious. He had stood on Mount Carmel. He had seen these prophets of Baal put in their place, so to speak. They had been executed. God in heaven stood victorious on that occasion. And so that was one of the great triumphs in the life of this man named Elijah. When you and I look at life, are there not peaks and valleys? We're not always on the mountaintop. We may wish that were the case, but it's not always like that. Every day something new comes our way. It might be the case that for a period of time we're riding a crest and everything's going well and we're on the mountaintop. We're on the peak. But then we begin to hit some bumps in the road, and then what happens? What sustains us in times like that? What Elijah needed to understand was this. God was with him. He was with him on the mountain. He was with him at Carmel. And he was with him while on the run. God never leaves his people. Let me give you a passage of Scripture that I believe is one of the most encouraging passages, passages of Scripture in the Bible. It's Psalm 139. Because as we think about the fact that every mountain has a valley and every valley has a mountain, what, what that says to me is this. We're going to have those periods in life where we feel triumphant, where we are victorious, where we feel like we've conquered. A giant, maybe. And then there are going to be those valleys in life, those low points in life. How are we going to deal with those times? What we need to do is understand that the Lord will stand by us. In Psalm 139, the psalmist here sets forth three basic fundamental facts about God. He says that God is omniscient. That is, God is all-knowing. He knows everything. 
God is not only omniscient or all-knowing, but He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He's with us when we're on the mountain. He's with us when we're down in the valley. And then God is omnipotent. That is, He is all-powerful. And you can go, go through the Scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments, and you will see over and over again the power of God displayed. But look, if you would, at Psalm 139. Here's what the psalmist said. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Did God know Elijah? Did he know Elijah inside and out? Absolutely. Does God know us? Of course he does. God not only knows everything, he sees everything. Solomon said in Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 4, neither is there any creature that is not made manifest in his sight. All things are open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees all. God knows all. And God, on this occasion, through the words of the psalmist, basically Let's us know that. Look at verse 4. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful, too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall, sh shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. Here the psalmist is saying that there is nowhere that you and I can go to escape the presence of God. God is always with us. Verse 12, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they are all written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. And so life is a series of mountains and valleys, peaks and valleys. What we need to do is, learn, is to learn to trust in the Lord, to remember that God is always at our side. Do you remember what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5? The Hebrew writer said on behalf of God, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. What shall man do unto me? To know that God is always with us. Now I said a moment ago that we're going to face peaks and valleys in life. And sometimes we, we talk about the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations that we face in life. Some are more severe than others. And sometimes we feel like Elijah did in the long ago. Maybe there's a sense of despair and despondency that, that overwhelms us. But to know that God is there for us. 
I like the words of the psalmist in Psalm 56 at verse 9 when he said, This I know, God is for me. To know that God is for us, that he's on our side. And that as we face the difficulties of life, we're not facing anything that other people in, other, in days gone by have not faced themselves. But there's a second lesson that I want to share with you tonight. And that is, things are not always as bad as they sometimes appear. Elijah became very despondent. Look again at verse 4, if you would, for just a moment. In verse 4, we read about Elijah taking a day's journey into the wilderness. And the Bible says he came and sat down under a broom tree or under a juniper tree and prayed that he might die. How bleak do you think Elijah felt the situation before him was at that point in time in his life? Let me tell you, I don't think he saw one ray of sunshine. I don't think he had any positive outlook in life at this particular juncture. I mean, here was a man that sat down and prayed to God that he might die. Now, we've alluded in times past to Job. And Job, as you recall, was a man who suffered immensely. And you can read about the trials he experienced in chapters 1 and 2 of his book. In chapter 3 of the book of Job, the Bible says that he cursed the day that he was born. Look at the life of Job. And yet here's what James said in James chapter 5, verse 11. You have heard of the patience or perseverance of Job. Sometimes what we need to do is step back, take a deep breath, and put our trust in God and realize Things are not as bad as maybe they appear. Sometimes people say, well, I don't know what the future holds. Listen, I don't know what the future holds. I'm not a prophet. Amos said in the long ago, he said, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. You and I, we do not know what the future holds, but this is what we do know. We know the one who holds the future. That is Almighty God. God is the one who is in absolute control of everything. Here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 99 at verse 1. And if you don't have this marked in your Bible, I would encourage you to do it. The psalmist said, the Lord reigneth. And what he is saying there is that the Lord is supreme. God is over all and he is above all. That's exactly what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. He is over all and he is above all. No wonder Paul said in Romans chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past tracing out. We're talking about God. And God holds the future in His hands. There are a lot of people in our world today that are very pessimistic, and maybe there are any number of factors that contribute to that particular mindset. But as God's people, what you and I need to do is see the, silver see the silver lining in maybe some of the adversities and difficulties that we face in this life. I believe what Elijah should have done on this occasion was to have trusted in the God of heaven. Look, God had delivered him from the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He had already had a showdown with Ahab, the king. He had stood victorious there. God had been with the prophet Elijah, and God would continue to be with the prophet Elijah. Just continue trusting 
in the Lord. Was it not Solomon that said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart? Lean not unto your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. To simply learn to trust in the Lord. Now, there are some people, I guess, in our world today, and maybe some in the church, whose lives are filled with anxiety and worry. They're burdened with the cares of life, and everything that they see, they view it from a pessimistic lens. What I want to encourage us to do is to take a more positive outlook in life. I don't know what kind of cares and anxieties you struggle with on a daily basis. I know what some of you struggle with. But here's what I do know. In 1 Peter chapter 5 at verse 7, Peter said, Casting all, A-L-L, all your care on him, for he cares for you. The Lord wants us to literally cast all of our cares on him. And I think the idea here is that that in one sweeping motion, we cast everything on the Lord. What about the psalmist when he said, cast your burden on the Lord and he will what? He will sustain you. That's what the Bible tells us to do. It's all in how we look at life. Sometimes, sadly, we view things pessimistically, negatively. We see the glass half empty rather than half full. And so it's all in how we look at things. It's remembering that God is in control, that God is the one who holds the future in his hands. And I like the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus said concerning our heavenly father, a sparrow shall not fall to the ground without our heavenly father knowing it. And then here's what Jesus said, are you not more of more value than they? If God takes note of the birds of the air, the sparrows that fall to the ground, if he is mindful of that, if he is mindful of some of the trivial activities that go on in our world, surely he is mindful of the state that we find ourselves in in this life. There's a third lesson I want to share with you tonight. And it's simply this. In our fight for right... That is, in our fight for what is right, sometimes we develop what might be called the Elijah complex. And by that, I simply mean that we have the idea that we're all alone. It's, it's us against the world, or it's me against the world. Look again at what Elijah said to God in his depressed state. Verse 10. He said, Lord, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. Now listen to him. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Two times the inspired writer records Elijah making this statement and basically saying, look, Lord, I'm all alone out here. Elijah had the idea that it was him against the world. And sometimes in our desire to do what's right, to live right, to act right, to lead others in the paths of righteousness, we get to thinking that it's, it, that it's us all alone against the world. Now, I will freely grant that our world 
needs a lot of help. And I would, I would freely grant that our nation today is sick in the heart. Our nation today needs major, major reforms. And the only way that I know that you and I can radically change this country that we live in, the world that we live in, is to make known the unsearchable riches of Christ. Because the Bible, the gospel, is God's power to salvation. The gospel is what will ultimately change the hearts and lives of people from worse to better. If you want a good case point, go to the city of Corinth and look at the cesspool of sin that those people lived in. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle Paul characterized those people in days gone by as being adulterers, idolaters, fornicators, homosexuals. He said that they were living in drunkenness. They were revilers. They were thieves. They were extortioners. But then he had this to say, but such were some of you, past tense. In Acts chapter 18, verse 8, the Bible says many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. What happened? They heard the gospel. And they were thus liberated from sin. Their lives had been altered. They had been changed for good through the gospel of Christ. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul could say, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Their lives have been changed. And so, yes, our world needs an overhaul. Our country needs an overhaul. And the only thing that's going to change our country for the better is the gospel of Christ. But having said that, let me submit unto you that there are still good and faithful brethren, not just in this country, but around the globe, that are engaging in the work of the kingdom and they are doing good work for the Lord Jesus Christ. They are faithful servants in the Lord. It's not just, it's not just me against the world. I mean, look at, look at how many of us are here tonight. Is that not, is that not, in and of itself, a statement that we're, we're not alone, that it's not just me, it's not just you, but there is a collective group of people in this, in this particular location, this particular city, concerned about doing what's right, about advancing the cause of Christ. And not just here, but you can go, you can go to Memphis, you can go to Nesbitt, you can go to South Haven, and there are good, godly, faithful brethren doing the work of the church. That ought to inspire. This past week I read in a bulletin, my home congregation, and the local preacher was writing in his little portion of the bulletin how that in that one congregation they have had 11 baptisms this summer. This summer. Listen, there are good people out there Laboring for the cause of Christ. Sometimes we get the idea that we're all alone. We're just out here on this island and, and we're getting beaten down day by day by day in the world and nobody cares. I don't believe that. I think that your presence tonight is a testimony to the fact that you believe in the God of heaven. You believe in the, in, 
in what the Lord has set forth through his word. You believe in the power of the gospel, and you believe that we ought to live right, do right, and lead others to the paths of righteousness. And I believe that your presence says that. And I believe that, that there are a lot of other people that belong to the body of Christ, who are members of the church of Christ, who think like we do, and who want to do what's right. And so what I'm trying to say is this. There are still a lot of people out here contending earnestly for the faith, just like Jude said in Jude 3. What the devil wants us to do is to, is to, to develop this Elijah complex that, oh, it's just me all alone out here. And I'm battling the world on my own and nobody cares. The world's, the world's going downhill and nothing can be done. I don't believe that. I believe that you and I, we have the God of heaven on our side. And we have the word of God at our disposal. It is called the sword of the spirit in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17. And if we will un sheath the sword of the Spirit, and go forth, advancing the cause of Christ, guess what? The Word of God will fall, as Jesus said in Luke 8:15, on honest and good hearts, and it will yield fruit. We are not alone. There are good people that comprise the church of our Lord this very hour who are trying to do everything that they can to advance the cause of Christ. And I think that's true not just here, but throughout our country and around the globe. And there are some foreign countries today where the church of Christ is extremely strong and vibrant. I think about people, we had, we had Ed Cruikshank here back in January talking about people willing to ride a bicycle or walk four hours one way to hear the word of God taught. Now you tell me, are we the only ones? Let me tell you. It may be the case that their commitment and their zeal for God puts us to shame. We're not alone. There are others out here that are vitally concerned about advancing the cause of Christ. And so, here's what the Lord said to Elijah. Elijah was down. He was out. He was ready to give up. He was ready to die. And God said, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And let me tell you what, there are some good brethren in our brotherhood. And what we need to do is encourage them and support them. There are people at work tonight trying to do everything in their power to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. And what we have to have is faith. The faith that if we will do our part, God will do his part. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. If we'll do our part, I believe God will do his part. What we have to do is stay strong, stay focused, and not give up. Because that's what the devil wants us to do. The devil wanted Elijah to give up, to just throw in the towel, to walk away. But God said, Elijah, I've got 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal, nor kissed him. And so to me, that suggests that in our fight for what is right, we need to understand that there are other faithful brethren willing to support us and stand by us. And in so doing, we can accomplish great things. In closing, let me just, let me just say this. 
There are going to be times in your life where you're going to be on that mountaintop. You're going to be riding that crest or that peak in life. There are going to be other occasions in your life when you're down in the valley. Just remember this. God is He's with you in the valley. He's with you on the mountaintop. God will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not get discouraged. Do not throw in the towel. Do not give up. Be faithful. Until death. Here's what Jesus said. Be, be faithful until death and I will give unto you the crown of life. In other words, be faithful even in the face of death. The promise is the Stephanos, the crown of life. I believe that we can do great things in this community. I believe that we can do great things in this particular part of the state with God's help. What we have to do is to arm ourselves with the gospel of Christ and to go forth, positively taking the gospel to a lost and dying world, not being inhibited, not allowing negative thoughts to pervade our minds. And by that, what comes to my mind is the mentality that says we can't do it or people aren't interested. I don't believe that. I believe there are people that are interested. What we have to do is find them. Maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you're not a child of God. What could we do to serve you? Well, here's what you need to do to begin your Christian life. First of all, you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Peter affirmed in Matthew 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What about you? Do you believe that? And then would you be willing to repent, to turn from a life of sin? Luke 13, 3. Would you be willing to confess Jesus as Lord, just like the eunuch did as recorded by Luke in Acts 8, verse 37? Would you be willing to be immersed in water for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, 38? When you do that, the Bible says God will add you to the church, Acts 2, 47. If you're faithful till death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful, what we want to do is encourage you to come home Come back to a loving God who will abundantly pardon, Hebrews 8, 12. Would you come as we stand and sing?